how evangelism pleases God. And it was Billy Graham who was quoted as saying this. He said, the evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We're not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear the full responsibility for the next one, but we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. Billy Graham, without question, has a great handle on evangelism. And, um, you know, I guess the question is, do we? And the answer is probably not. Many of us don't have a good handle on evangelism. And one of the reasons, I think most of us are aware that it's necessary. Most of us are aware that there's a tremendous need. But, um, but we stumble. And our grip on evangelism is weak and at times embarrassingly so. And as we've thought about this and as we've began to put this together, I have a question for you and maybe you can help address it. But why do you think it is that we don't have a very good handle on evangelism? What are some of the hindrances that you have experienced in your own life as it comes to, number one, first of all, let's, let's define the term. One of the hindrances is a lot of times we use terms and we think everybody understands what it is and we don't have a clue what it is. If evangelism pleases God, some of you are going to walk out of here thinking, what, what's evangelism? Well, very simply, evangelism is to tell others or pro proclaim to others that men and women can be reconciled, another big word, which means just made right before God through Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. In a nutshell, that's exactly what it is. It's to tell other people the great news, and that is that God loves them, Jesus died for them, and if they would just believe that and trust that, then they will be right before God and can look forward to not only eternal life immediately, but a life that God has prepared for us in a place that He's called heaven. That's evangelism in very simple terms. So now as we think about it, what hinders us from telling that simple message to other people? What has hindered you? Anybody? Okay, number one, fear. Yeah, what do we fear? We, we fear rejection. We fear that, well, rejection in what ways? They're not going to like you anymore? Well, I mean, huh? That you're odd, that, you know, that what you're saying doesn't make any sense. You're afraid that you know, somehow or another there's fear involved. I would tell them, but there's risk. I'm afraid of what I think I may lose, so I'm not going to say anything. And so there's fear, and, and that's natural. Uh, what other hindrances have you experienced? Okay, ashamed of what? Okay, I'm not, well, Paul went on record as saying, you know what, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. But I guess it's embarrassed. What, what, fear, embarrassment, awkward. Uh, why, why do we feel awkward? Why would you feel awkward? Inadequate. You're, you're, you don't know what to say. How, how do you say it? What do I say? How do I say it so that it sounds real and it doesn't sound like it's some canned speech from somewhere and still make it presentable to the person that's listening? I'm ignorant of what to say. I don't know what to say. And rather than risk sounding like I've got some canned speech that I'm now going to present, I'd rather not say anything. Right? You don't want to sound canned, so you don't want to, sound, you don't want to say anything. So it's ignorance. It's ignorance of how to present it. How do I say it? What do I say? What do I really believe? What is it that I want to tell somebody? I don't know what to say. And because I don't know what to say, I'm also afraid because if they ask me a question, I'm not going to have an answer. What if they ask me some theological question? What if they ask me some deep religious question and I don't know anything about it? I'm afraid, so I'm not going to say anything. 
because of my ignorance in what to say. So ignorance is one. Fear is another. What's another reason why many people are, are hindered from sharing with others? Okay, good. And, and you, did you hear that? The street corner evangelist, you know, it's like, oh, God, don't, please don't make me stand in the corner of a street and yell to people passing by. And, but a lot of it has to do with bad experiences. I know before I became a Christian, I had those types of experiences with people that, frankly, just were, they seemed loony to me. You know what I mean? The kind of loony. It was like, whoa, wait a minute here. You know, and if, growing up in Pennsylvania, the only things you saw on the West Coast were those people walking around with, like, robes on with big signs, repent, you know. The, the earthquake's coming, we're all going to die. And it was like people walking around, repent, you know. And I was like, gee, that's pretty weird stuff. So there's bad experiences that maybe in our past of people who presented in ways that we weren't real excited about. So therefore, we don't want to continue or to give somebody else a bad impression of who a Christian is. So you've got that, you've got bad experience, you've got ignorance, you don't know what to say, you've got fear and you're afraid to say it, you're afraid to be rejected. Um, what else? Oh, yeah, the great inconsistency doctrine. Yeah, we know that one. It's like, well, I really can't say anything because I don't really have my act together. Yeah, you know what? And many of us are neutralized from being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others because, frankly, we look in the mirror and there's a major contradiction in what we're telling other people and how we're living our life. But there's a fix for that, and we'll talk about that. Stan. All right, hey, I'm not an evangelist. Billy Graham's an evangelist. That's a gift from God. He's a gifted man. I'm not a pastor, teacher. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not any of those things. So that's somebody else's job, man. That's not my job. Good point. First day here and he's already participating. See, but he'll learn like the rest of you not to do it after a while. Yes. Oh, because, yeah, I mean, it's like, what are you going to tell other people what they already know? See, that's a big problem is all your friends are Christians, you're a Christian, your family's all Christian, everyone's saying, oh, yeah, it's, it's just like, oh, it's terrible. there's no one to tell it to anymore, huh? Everybody's heard. That's good news. You got to take you out of here. <laughs> Beam me up. I'm ready to go, baby. I've done everything I can do. But uh, not you. I'm just saying in general, I mean, that's never, never personal. You don't want to do that. You turn people off. They won't answer anymore. Um, how about, uh, yes, ma'am. Oh, there's the, there is probably the, the greatest hindrance of sharing with other people. And that is, you know what? You don't care enough. I don't care enough. You don't care enough. We're indifferent. We're apathetic. It's kind of the, the attitude that, you know what? Oh, everyone can believe whatever they want to believe, and all roads lead to heaven anyway, so let's just not be too pushy. All roads lead to heaven, right? Wrong. Got a problem here, but many of us believe that, and therefore we don't share with other people because we're indifferent. We really don't care about them. You can only answer one question. That's, that's just a rule, because I don't have time for this. <laughs> but it just generates a little interest and excitement. But isn't that, isn't that the truth? I mean, those are all reasons why we don't want to talk to anybody else. We don't know what to say. We're afraid that they're going to reject us. We're afraid we don't, that they'll know we don't know what we're saying. We're indifferent. Frankly, we don't care enough to confront or to say. And we've had bad experiences in the past. I mean, in a nutshell, those four reasons more than any are hindrances or four major hindrances to why we don't talk to other people. 
So let's go through them. We'll go through them one at a time, and you tell me what you think. Ignorance. Let's take ignorance first. I don't know what to say. John chapter 9. Open your Bibles. Let's get rolling. I got a lot of stuff to do. John chapter 9. For those of you who have said that, I don't know what to say. I'm not sure what to say. This is a great story. I've read this over and over and over again, and I am just impressed by the simplicity of what it has to say. If you think you don't know what to say, you don't know what you need to say. So this will help you. John chapter 9, starting with verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man that was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied it to the eyes to, and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent. And so he went away, washed, and came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Hey, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. It looks like him, but it's not him. And he kept saying, I am the one. Therefore they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered and said this, The man who is called Jesus made clay. He anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. What do you say? What do we need to know? What does this man know about Jesus? What does he know? Man, I don't know nothing about this dude. I don't know nothing at all. All that I know is he came up, spit on the ground, made mud out of it, stuck it on my eyes, said, go wash, and I went and washed, and when I washed, I came back and I could see. That's all I know. That's easy, isn't it? I don't know nothing else. I don't know anything. What do you need to know? What do you really need to know? You need to know a passage, a verse, a scripture reference. You need to know some seminary doctrine. You need, what do you need to know to tell other people what Jesus did in your life? That's it. What he's done for you. That's as simple as it gets. This guy said, man, I don't know nothing. But I know this. This guy named Jesus, he put mud on my eyes, said, wash up. I did. I see. I don't know anything else, but that's all I know, and that's all I'm here to tell you. That's all I know. Jesus changed my life. So then what they do? Well, then they brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Wow, that's not good enough. So now it was on a Sabbath, uh, on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. It says, again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. Again, they asked him the same thing. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, I washed, and now I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And they went back to him again and they said, hey, therefore, to the blind man again, what do you say about him? since he opened your eyes. And then he said this. You know, I've been thinking about this. I've had some time. This is an amazing thing. This has never happened before. So now I've had time to think about it. I know this. He's pretty special. 
He must be a prophet. He must be someone special. Because the argument goes that how can anyone who's a sinner perform such signs? How can anybody who's bad do such good? How can anybody change my life in a way that's been so positive in my relationship with my wife, in my relationship with my kids, in my relationship with other people? How can anybody who's bad do something so good for me in my life? I said, man, you know, I've been thinking about it. He's pretty special. I don't know anything else about him so far. I know his name's Jesus. I know he did what he said he was going to do. And I know this. He's pretty special. Man, he's done something special in my life. What do you need to know? What do you need to know? This guy doesn't even know who he is yet. But he knows he's special. He knows he changed his life. It doesn't get any easier than that. If he's changed your life, then you know how special he is. What do you really need to know to share with other people? So he goes on. And the Jews therefore did not believe him, believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight. They didn't believe it. This guy couldn't be blind because no one blind can see just because someone spits on the ground and makes mud and does this. There can't be. There must be another illogical explanation. There must be another reason. Ah, maybe it's just he fell down and hit his head when he went to wash and somehow it shook it all back in there. It has to be a logical explanation. Maybe he just grew up. You know, he just grew up. You know, that youthful stupidity is gone now and he's grown up, he's seen the light, he's just gotten a little wiser, a little more mature. Maybe he had children, that's why he changed, that's how he grew up. You know what it is? Have you been there? You've talked to people, they got all kind of logical reasons why you're different than you used to be. And they debated, that's what they were doing. Look what it says back in verse 9, I mean it says in, in verse 7, like one was saying, well that can't be the beggar, that can't be the blind man, the other saying, oh yeah it was him, well maybe it's not him, well someone like him, and he kept saying, it is me. You debate all you want. I know who I am and I know what happened. Why don't you just ask me? Save yourself a lot of headaches. That's not what they do. We've been there. We've shared with people that all have good reasons why you've become what you've become. Must be college education. Oh yeah, that'd do it. So they questioned him. And they said in verse 19, is this your son? So they went to the parents. This kid couldn't be blind. So they went to the parents and said, was this your son? Was he born blind? Then how now does he see? And his parents answered that and said, hey, we know that this is our son. We're not, this is our son, we know that. And that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's old enough, we don't want to get involved. <laughs> you know what I mean? He'll speak for himself. And the reason was, in 22, his parents were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Promised One, the prophet of God, the one we've been waiting for, if anyone would say that's who it is, he'd be kicked out of the synagogue. Lose your religious membership, boys and girls, if you say that he is the Messiah. For this reason, his parents said, hey, you know what? He's old enough. You ask him. You talk to him. We have nothing to do with this. It's his problem now. So a second time they called the blind man, the man who had been born blind, and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. This guy's great. And he said, you know what? Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know I used to be blind, and now I can see. They said, therefore, to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? By this time, the guy's getting a little offended by all this. He said, you know what? I've already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? I like that. Now, I don't know, I don't know if he was being funny, if he was making a joke, if he was being sarcastic. I don't know. But about this point, the guy's patience is running a little thin. You know what? I told you why I'm different. 
I told you who did it. You can debate it and argue it all that you want, but I'm telling you, this is what happened. And that's what he did. So they reviled him, and they, and, and they said, you're his disciple, but we're the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we don't know where he's from. And then the man answered and said, you, tell, you know, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does the will of God, that he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. And if this man were not from God, he couldn't do this very thing. He couldn't do it. Man, you know what's great? You know when, when John the Baptist was in prison and he was starting to doubt whether Jesus was really the one that God had sent? that he was the Christ, that he was the Savior of the world, and he started to doubt it, and he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, would you ask him one more time, are you really the promised one? You know what Jesus said to him? He said, you go back and you tell, tell John this, that the lame can walk, and the dead are risen, the blind can see, and the good news is preached to all the people. A sign that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, was that He could now open the eyes of those who had never seen before. And the Pharisees, who should have been looking for that sign, they missed it. And here's a guy that knew nothing else but this. I was born blind, and now I can see. And you know who did it? Jesus. What do you need to know? What do you need to know? You know what's great? And the story goes on. And I want you to see something that just fascinated me in verse 35. They kicked him out. They said, that's enough. I don't want to hear about this anymore. This is nonsense. Hit the road. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said in verse 35, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Who is he? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. I am God. That's what he said. Jesus claimed to be God over and over again. He proved it by the things that he did. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That's what he said. So he said to this guy, you know what? That's me. I'm God. He said the same thing to the woman at the well. That's me. I'm God. And you know what? Look at it said. And he said, Lord, I believe it. And he began to worship him. What do you need to know? Man, you know what? This guy said, you know what? I don't know much. But what I do know is this, that this one called Jesus changed my life. And that's all I want to tell you. It's as simple as that. What do you need to know? I think the way that I see this is, let me ask you a personal question. Has he changed your life? Has he changed your life? If he has changed your life, and the way that he does it is you simply put your faith and trust in him, and you say, I believe you're God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe that. And the Bible says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. Guess what? You're a new person. Your life is going to be radically changed. And if your life was radically changed, you qualify to tell other people what's happened in your life. He changed your life. That's all you need to know. Well, what verse is that? You don't even need to know that. What passage? You don't need to know that. Because the person you're going to be talking to has never read this anyway. It's like, gee whiz, you know what? We're so worried about sharing with people because they're going to pick a verse out to discredit something we're about to say. You know what? We're getting dangerous with too much knowledge here. 
You know what I'm saying? We begin to disqualify ourselves from telling people about Jesus Christ because we begin to think that we need to know more than we need to know. And the only thing we need to know is, did he change your life or not? And if he did, tell people he did. It's as simple as that. It doesn't get any easier. Every one of us qualify. You know, in 1 John, John said this, you know what, the things we, see, we have seen, the things that we have handled, the things we have heard, the things we have experienced are the things that we're here to tell you about. And then we tell you so that you may know that you can have eternal life. I'm just telling you, Jesus Christ changed my life. It wasn't because we went to a good marriage seminar that our marriage is back together. No siree, it's because Jesus Christ changed my life and my attitude toward my wife and my kids. It wasn't because I went to a good business seminar why our business is where it is. No, it's not that at all. It's because I've turned that business or whatever over to him and I live by his principles and I live to, to please him and I study the word of God and I know what God says in that area. That's why if there's any success, it's all attributed to him. Any area of your life, it becomes very easy to say, hey, I am who I am because of the grace of God. Jesus changed my life. should have seen how screwed up my life was before I met him. And so you go down through it. And the other thing, turn with me to Acts chapter 1 for a second. And when you talk about fear, and many of us do, we're afraid to say something. If you've believed and put your trust in Jesus Christ, there's another great benefit that goes along with it. And in Acts chapter 1, here's what it is. Look at verse 8. Jesus said this, but you know what? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You know what God promises when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and believe that He is who He claimed to be? The moment you do that, that instant in time, Titus 3, 3 through 5 says that you are washed or regenerated by the renewing of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, according to Apostle Paul, he says, don't you know the Spirit of God now lives within you? The Spirit of God takes residence in your life the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ. When the Holy Spirit comes to live within your life, you now have access to the power of God for the express purpose of being able to share with other people in an area where once before you were afraid. And you would have frankly never done it anyway. If you didn't know him, you're not going to tell anybody about him. Now that you do, he gives you the power to overcome the fear that's natural, the fear of rejection, the fear of saying the wrong thing, the fear of not being liked by people. The Spirit of God gives you the power to be a witness to the world that you live in. All you need to do is acknowledge and recognize the power of God that already resides within you. And say, Lord, I'm scared to death, but I believe what you say. Give me the boldness to proclaim your name. Give me the boldness to tell other people what you've done in my life. That's all that I ask you to do. And I know that you'll do it because you've already promised that that's the case. How else can you explain? Turn ahead a couple of chapters. How else can you explain? Look at Acts chapter 2 for a minute. What other explanation can you give for a guy whose name is Peter who denied Jesus Christ when he was in the garden, when he was taken to trial before Pilate, he denied that he ever had anything to do with him. They hid in the upper room and were afraid to be seen in public. Here was a man who quite frankly wimped out at the crucial time. And you know what? And we're all tough on him. Oh man, I wouldn't have wimped out. Not me, man. Peter, I can't believe he wimped out. Peter couldn't believe it either. He said he wouldn't do it. He'd never do it. And he did it anyway. 
See, Peter had one thing uh, lacking in his life that we now have available to us, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. So on Pentecost, when the Spirit of God descended and entered the life of a man named Peter, look what happened in verse 14. He stood up in front of a crowd of people, the same guy who denied Jesus before a couple of soldiers, the same guy who hid out in the upper room and was afraid to go out in public and sent people out to buy their food because they didn't want anybody to know where they were, the same little milquetoast wimp that used to hide all the time now stood in front of three and 4,000 people, 5,000, 10,000 people and said this, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, hey, men of Judea and all that who live in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give heed to my words and went out and let everybody know who Jesus was. This same wimp stood out boldly and said, Jesus Christ is alive and He changed my life. And He can do the same for you. That's what He said. And it goes on. It doesn't stop there. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 6. Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have I, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. And he took this cripple and he lifted him up in the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. He boldly said, hey, you're going to be able to walk. And he went on to say why. It wasn't because of anything that I did, but it was because of the one who raised him, and that's Jesus Christ. He has power not only over just the lame and the blind, but he has power over death. He raised from the dead. And he goes on all throughout this book, 12, 16. If you look at it in, verse, in chapter 4, 18, the religious leaders commanded them saying, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter the wimp, who no longer was a wimp, and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to heed you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. You afraid? If you kind of know Him, you've got the power of God living within you. And that boldness is there for one specific purpose, and that's to let others know about the love of God in Jesus Christ. I'm ignorant. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do it. I haven't memorized the four spiritual laws yet. I'm not sure how to read the booklet. I get real confused and stuff like that. I can't read upside down. Hey, just do yourself a favor. Make it simple. Just tell Him what He did in your life. Just tell Him who He is, what He's done in your life. Make it simple. You qualify if you've come to know Him. Indifference? How can the love of God dwell within anyone that wouldn't share with another person who's on their way to hell. That's what the Bible says. If you love people, you're not going to be indifferent. You're not going to be apathetic. And you're going to know that all roads don't lead to heaven because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and you ain't getting there but through me, buddy. It's the only way. I'm the resurrection and the life. You know what? And even though you die, you shall surely live if you believe in me. And then he went on. And you know what he said? He said, do you believe that? Do you believe that? See, do you believe that? That's what he said. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you'll tell other people that it's true. All roads don't lead to heaven. There's one way. It's a narrow way. Jesus Christ is the door. The narrow gate to the presence of God. There ain't no other way. You can't get there any other way. You can't be indifferent. And you can't blow people off and let them have some false sense of security that they're all right. If they don't know Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, they're not all right, and they're going to die in their sins, and God will judge them. You can't be indifferent to people you say you love and not take the time to explain that to them. You love them, you tell them. It's as simple as that. Do you believe it? Then you'll tell people. Let's pick up where we left off last week. We went through and started to talk about 
some characteristics of the life of a person who wants to please God in the area of evangelism. The life of a person who wants to please God in the area of evangelism. First of all, we see this, that you have to have the proper attitude. 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 18 says, you know why you just tell people about Jesus? You tell them because it's good for them. By the way, telling other people about Jesus Christ is not some type of heavenly Amway program. Alright, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, oh good, signed up six more this week. You know, it, that's, that's not what it is. See, because the heavenly Amway program goes something like this. The more people I can tell, the more people I get underneath me in the old pyramid. And the more people I get underneath me in the pyramid, somehow I'll be on the top of the pile, and then I'll get over the hump and get into heaven. You know what I mean? It's like the more people we can tell about Jesus and the more people that believe in Jesus, the more people are underneath our little pyramid structure so that we can step on them and somehow reach God. I'm sorry, but you know what? It's by grace we're saved through faith. It's a gift from God, lest any should boast. It's not of works. We don't get brownie points necessarily that get us into heaven. We do it because it's pleasing to God and it's best for the person that's hearing it. That's the proper attitude to sharing Jesus Christ with other people. Not because that's what's going to get you in heaven. You get in heaven by simply putting your faith and trust in Christ. And everything else that you do in your life, you do it out of love because of what He's done for you. You don't give to get into heaven. You don't share with people to get into heaven. You don't believe God and you do what He says to do to get into heaven. You get into heaven by putting your faith and trust in Christ. And that's it. That's the only work that pleases God. Everything else pleases them because it's a matter of obedience. Okay, So let's get that straight. You're not building some heavenly Amway program here. You're doing what's right. That's the right attitude. That's what Paul said. Second thing is we saw that we have to have spiritual aims. We have got to have a spiritual aim in our life. If you don't have the aim, you won't hit the target. And the spiritual aim is very simple. You know what he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 22? Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I'm weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. This is why I do it. I've got a goal. I'm going to become your friend. I want to become your friend because I care about you, because I love you, because I want you to know the same God that changed my life. I want you to know it. But the only way I'm going to earn your ear or your audience is become a real person in your life, to care about you when things aren't going good, to be there and rejoice when, when you get the promotion or whenever things are going good, just to be in your life. You know why I want to do that? Not because I need more friends, but because you don't know Jesus Christ. And I want at some point in that relationship to have built the credibility to be able to then tell you about the love of God through Jesus Christ. That's my spiritual aim and objective to every relationship that I have. Is it yours? It was Paul's. It has to be yours. And if it is yours, then the question is, when are you going to tell him? When are you going to tell him? Don't wait too long. Because we don't know how long we've got. Tell them. If it's because you're afraid, now you know that's not an answer. you got the boldness of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because you don't know what you're going to say, you got the answer. If He changed your life, that's all you got to tell Him. That's all you got to say. Tell Him. Paul had a spiritual aim. You know, it's interesting, we get sidetracked too with spiritual aims, and it's an amazing thing. Um, I think we passed these out. Do you, do you have this thing? What is CBMC? Did you get that? Probably the first six rows did, and the rest of you always get left out of everything. But that's what you get for wanting to sit in the back and get out of here quicker. <laughs> so anyway. But you know, one of the most amazing things, in 1978, 1978, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I believed in Him. I was confronted with it. I was, I was confronted by real people who cared about me, that helped me to see that Jesus was who He claimed to be, that He could change lives. And I wanted my life changed. I needed it changed. And so 
All of a sudden, CBMC, CBMC, the purpose statement of CBMC is to present Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to business and professional men and develop Christian business and professional men to carry out the Great Commission. One of the first things that I did after I became a Christian, I was encouraged by people around me who were smart enough to know the benefit of this, but they said, you know what? He changed your life. You've got to tell as many people as you can. I said, man, that's a great idea. How do you do it? Well, hey, we have these breakfasts that meet once a week, and we invite business people from the community who have never heard who Jesus Christ is, and we invite them to come to listen to a person. All they do is stand in front of everybody and say, here's what Jesus did in my life. That's all that the purpose of the, of the organization is. I thought, man, this is great. So I started to get on this going around telling people what Jesus did in my life. Man, I was excited to do it. Because it was good for me, it's good for you. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So I went around and started telling people. So then one time, I get down to this place in Huntington Beach. And it was a CBMC in Huntington Beach. There was about 12 guys there. The average age was 72. <laughs> the number of years that they have known Jesus Christ personally, I think, was 45. All right? There wasn't one guest, there wasn't one person there that didn't know Jesus. And I was supposed to go there and tell them about Jesus. They knew, his, they knew Jesus before I was born. Like, what am I telling them about Jesus? They already know Jesus. So I was pretty stupid then, you know, and I thought, well, you know, and, and, and I just asked, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> See, I was a lot more bold and arrogant then than I am now. And I, was, and, and, and I was so dumb. I mean, and then I was like, and I didn't really know a whole lot else. I said, man, what the hell are you guys doing here? And these old guys just about dropped like some of you just about did. But that's what I said. And they looked at me like, I think you are telling us. I said, well, you know, the purpose is to bring people in to hear about Jesus. You already heard about him. I drove 45 minutes in the traffic to get here to tell you something you already know. Doesn't sound too smart to me. The next time you want me to come back here, bring people in here that never heard about Jesus. Is that what this organization is all about? It's a great organization. It's got a great objective. But you know what messes it up? The people in the organization. That's who messes it all up. It's like it becomes some Christian rotary club. We get together so we can share leads and sales information and we can rub elbows with somebody who may benefit us somehow in this life. It becomes a place where all Christians can go and feel good about being together. It becomes a place where we can use one another to benefit ourselves pr profitably in a business arrangement. I'm not saying that that's what it was designed to do, but that's what people have made it become. It's a great organization, and I highly recommend it. But I recommend it for the purpose that it was established, and that is for men and women, business people, to bring business acquaintances to a place where they could feel uninhibited, where they can feel um, open and free, to be able to say, hey, listen, we're going to breakfast next week. If you're afraid to share Jesus with people, say, hey, then here's a breakfast we'll come to, and it's a great thing. And then somebody's going to stand there and tell them about Jesus. And you'll see how easy it is. And maybe then you'll follow up on the way home or back to the office and say, what did you think about what the speaker said? It's a great way to introduce people to Christ. But we get so sidetracked, we forget what we're doing, what we're doing for. It's just amazing. Paul said, man, you know what? I got a spiritual aim. Every person that I know, the reason that I want to be friends with them is to let them know about Jesus Christ. Everything else pales in comparison. And so, um, there's some brochures in the back on what CBMC is. If you're afraid and you don't know how to do it, then bring people to a breakfast. 
And Al wants to stand up and give an, an endorsement. And frankly, Al, I don't have time. I got two more points. But if you want to, if if you want to talk to him afterwards, you talk to him all you want. Okay, number three. Let's go. Number three. Here we go. Cultural adaptability. Four major characteristics of a person who has a heart for other people. They have the proper attitude. They know why they're doing it. They have a spiritual aim, and they also are willing to adapt culturally. They're willing to become what they need to become to meet the need of the person that needs to hear the gospel. And that is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself was not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak. To win the weak I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. He's saying, you know what I learned to do? I learned to adapt. I learned to become whatever I had to become. Not to sin. Not to cross that line. But I became what I had to become so that I could be friends. So that I can have a, a, an audience with the person that I want to talk to. If it means I hate sports but the person I want to meet, the person I want to meet the needs of, love sports, then I find out what sport they like and we go to a game together. Whatever it is. If they like the theater, then you go to the theater. Oh, whatever you got to do, you find what they like. And even though you don't like it, you say, you know what, I don't care whether I like it, I want this person to know Jesus Christ and I'm going to go. I talked to a guy who was in an international ministry. The purpose of the ministry was to let people around the world know about Jesus Christ. China was opened up for the first time. They went to a state dinner in the country of China the first time that any Christian organization had been permitted to go into China. They were sitting at a big banquet table, and the host had poured drinks for everybody. And they went to raise the glass to toast, and there were people in the party who wanted to win these people to Jesus Christ who would not pick the glass up because they had a problem with drinking, and they offended the host country because that was their hang-up. And immediately it put a wall up before them and it hindered the sharing of the gospel with those people because they were more hung up on, oh my God, we can't drink wine. We can't have a drink. They were more hindered by that than they were at the ultimate objective or the spiritual aim of witnessing and meeting the needs of those people. They wouldn't pick up a glass to toast the host nation because they had a problem with drinking. Are you kidding me? No, we're not, are we? I don't like the movies they watch. I don't like what they do. I don't like their lifestyle. I don't like anything about them. So we get hung up on what people wear, if people drink, if people smoke, what kind of movies they watch, whether they go to church, whether they've been baptized as a baby, whether they've been baptized later. We get hung up on what clothes they have on. We get hung up on what cars they drive. We get hung up on how much money they make. We get hung up on all that stuff. And you know what it does? That personal preference hinders us from being able to tell them the one simple thing they need to know, and that it's faith in Jesus Christ that saves lives and nothing else. Don't you ever... Allow a personal preference to create an ambigu ambiguous message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read about a pastor's conference where a group of German Lutherans had gathered. Listen to this. At the reception, their reception included serving beer. Not one of them thought anything of it because in that culture, beer was acceptable. They all came in, they grabbed a mug of beer, they all slammed down a drink, they enjoyed it, and they got around to talking about Jesus Christ. Never had a problem with it. But then one guy lit up a cigar. 
and the place went up in smokes. Oh my God! You're smoking a cigar! So what? You just had a beer. Well, that's all right. And I come from a background where everybody in my family smokes cigars, so we're having a cigar. What's the big deal? We always had a cigar after dinner. What's the big deal? Oh, I can't believe you'd have a cigar. No God-fearing, loving Christian would smoke a cigar. No siree. That's crazy. Don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? Oh, a lot of joy and love in a relationship like that, isn't there, folks? A lot of freedom there, boy. The world looks at that and says, man, you can't even lift up a glass and have a sip of wine, huh? Is that what your religion believes? No, man. I don't have a religion. I got a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what? And I've got freedom to do anything that I want to do. And some things I chose not to do anymore because they're not good for me. But also I have the grace of God to accept you exactly where you are. See, the key thing is you just need to know Jesus. I don't care whether you smoke or drink or what you do. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter to Him either. Because He demonstrated His love, yet while we're sinners, He died for you. Right where you're at, what you're doing, the things you're doing, right there, He loves you just as you are. God, help us not to allow personal preferences to hinder another person from ever coming to see the love of God in Jesus Christ. And the last thing is, we have to have a heavenly ambition. A heavenly ambition. Means you know what Paul said? He goes, man, you know, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, don't you know that in a race all the runners won, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. You know what he said? He goes, you will never, you will never, ever share the gospel with another person if you don't have that as your goal. Man, you know what? I just pulled out, I'm doing something stupid again, but I pulled out a log from um, three years ago. I ran my first marathon in 1988. I pulled out a training log the other day to see how many miles I logged in. I logged in almost 600 miles in 12 weeks, which is about 50 miles a week. I ran to be ready to run a race. I was disciplined, and I accomplished it. And the reason that I did is because I had a goal. And I disciplined myself to accomplish the goal. And I did it to win a certificate that I just found out in the garage hiding in a box of other stuff. <laughs> it was all dirty, and all we did was it's just one more thing to stick in a scrapbook. And I did all that to win a certificate that got dust on it now. How much more disciplined should we be and how much more of a goal and ambition should it be? And what lengths should we go to to make sure that others hear about the love of God in Jesus Christ? We need to be disciplined in that area of our life. And you know what the good news is? That it won't be to get a certificate that gets dusty in a garage or sits in a scrapbook, but it will be to receive the, the, the applause of heaven, the applause of God. And it's before us, and it's laid up, and it'll never fade. And it'll be a crown of glory. That one day because of the discipline of our life, the spiritual aim of our life, because, you know what, we had the right attitude, because we had a goal to reach others for Christ, because we didn't let a beer hang somebody up from coming to the kingdom of God, because we weren't stuck up and snobbish in our walk with the Lord, and we accepted people right where they were, because we had a heavenly ambition which was to please God more than anything else in this life. Pleasing people, you can't please them. You might as well forget it. You live to please God, and people will be pleased as a result. Let me just close on this. 
I don't like to do this. I don't like to read stories, but this is a great story, and I'm going to do it, so bear with me for a second, because it summarizes everything that we've been talking about in the last two sessions. It was found in a book, The Applause of Heaven. Max Licato writes this in one chapter, just one quick little thing. He said, The legends of the Taj Mahal, they all fascinate, but there is one that haunts. The favorite wife of the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan died. Devastated, he resolved to honor her by constructing a temple that would serve as her tomb. Her coffin was placed in the center of a large parcel of land, and construction of the temple began around it. No expense would be spared to make her final resting place magnificent. But as the weeks turned into months, the Shah's grief was eclipsed by his passion for the project. He no longer mourned her absence, and the construction consumed his life. One day, while walking from one side of the construction site to the other, his leg bumped up against a wooden box. The prince brushed the dust off his leg and ordered the worker to throw the box out. The Shah didn't know that he had ordered the disposal of the coffin, now forgotten, hidden beneath layers of dust, dust and time. The one the temple was intended to honor was forgotten, but the temple was erected anyway. He said, difficult to believe, isn't it? Perhaps, but eerie nonetheless. Could someone build a temple and forget why? Could someone construct a palace yet forget the king? Could someone sculpt a tribute and forget the hero? Well, you answer those questions. Answer them in a church. The next time you enter an assembly of worship, position yourself where you can see the people and then you decide. You can tell the ones who remember the slain one, they're wide-eyed and expectant. Their children watching the unwrapping of a gift. Their servants standing still as a king passes. You don't doze in the presence of royalty and you don't yawn while receiving a gift, especially when the giver is the king himself. You can also tell the ones who see only the temple. They're the ones whose eyes wander. Their feet shuffle and their hands doodle and their mouths open, not to sing, but just to yawn. For no matter how hard they try to stay amazed, their eyes start to glaze over. All temples, even the Taj Mahal, lose their luster after a while. See, the temple gazers don't mean to be bored. They love the church. They can cite its programs and praise its pastors. They can cite its programs, praise its pastors, and they don't mean to grow stale. And they put on hats and hose and coats and ties and come every week. But still, there's something missing. The one they once planned to honor hasn't been seen in quite a while. So, but those who have seen him can't f seem to forget. They find him often in spite of the temple rather than because of it. They brush the dust away and stand ever impressed before his tomb. That's right, his empty tomb. The temple builders and the savior seekers. You'll find them both in the same church, on the same pew, and at times even in the same suit. One sees the structure and says, what a great church. The other sees the Savior and says, what a great Christ. Which do you see? I'll tell you what, if you have seen the Savior, you can't help but want to tell others. And you'll become whatever you have to be, so that in some ways you can save some. Let's pray. Our Father, what a great illustration that Max writes. Are we a Savior seeker? Are we a church builder? What are we? God, help us not to be distracted by so many things that come into our life that keeps us from focusing on the one true objective in being here. And that's to reach as many men and women as we can with your love that you have demonstrated in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, help us never in the areas of personal preference be a stumbling block to those who have never experienced that grace and that forgiveness. Help us to become all things to all men. So as Paul said, by some ways we can win some. God, help us to consider those around us 
who have never heard the message of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Help those who are feeling inadequate to realize that they don't need to know anything but what Jesus has already done in their life. They don't need to know a passage, a verse, a scripture reference. They don't need to know anything other than what God you've done already through, the, through your Son in their life. And we thank you that you give us the power of the Holy Spirit and all boldness to be able to proclaim that message to as many people as you open the door for us to do. Help us have the proper attitude to share with others because it's the right thing to do. Help us have spiritual aims and goals that we would reach people in our lives with your message, knowing that we don't convert anyone, that it's not a, a persuasiveness of speech, but it's the power of God for salvation. Help us to adapt. Help us to lay aside personal preferences that we can accept and love people just as you have, right where they are. And Lord, we just thank you for that. And may our ambition always be, above all, to please you in all things, not worrying about whether we please people or not, but in order that we bring glory to you, may we please you in the area of evangelism in our life. And we just thank you and praise you that you've entrusted us with a tremendous gift and message. And we're humbled in the fact that you have put it in our hands to share with others this great news. And we just thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.